to some extent, I can say that we are helping making these platforms cleaner, but also the community that we built around this work is also very active and now takes an, a front seat role in, in mitigating these issues. My name is Nelson Kwaje. I am a South Sudanese by nationality, uh, but I've been living in Kenya for the last uh, seven years. Um, initially as a student, uh, but then later on as a consultant, IT professional, and now I work as a director of program for an organization named Defy Hate Now, and we focus on building mechanisms for trust by tackling misinformation, incitement to violence, um, hate speech, and other vices that uh, manifest online. Around about this time uh, last year, we met in uh, in Kenya, and if I remember correctly, Defy Hate Now was just only concentrating on working in South Sudan. Why the uh, uh, the expansion to these other two countries? Um, we initially started in South Sudan, just the start of 2014, as a response to the hate speech and incitement to violence that uh, it's predated and was exacerbated by the conflict and the power struggle that led to the civil war in South Sudan in late 2013, December 2013. So there was already um, an environment of suspicion and fear. And as the conflict started, the rifts between um, communities and political groups increased, and that led to actual violence and a lot of people dying. And as such, creation of various groupings online, some more organized than others, for spreading hate speech, misinformation, and incitement to violence. So that is that. That is why the now bit of our name. <laughs> I usually say we used to be defy hate now, but now we're more structured. Uh, so we're now defying hate in a more structured way. So we started as a community response, and that mm-hmm. work later on got funding and was more sustained uh, intervention in South Sudan between 2014 and 20. Um, uh, 18. That was kind of our first phase of intervention funded by the German Foreign Office. Uh, so after that phase ended and we, we started noticing now uh, misinformation as a big trend as well as hate speech and we got invitation um, by also some partners in UNESCO in Cameroon because the conflict in Cameroon had taken um, it was already being, it already also, it, 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 it's it, um, the same divisions in the society, but in Cameroon now, it's not, uh, tribalism is not big, but um, regionalism and linguistic differences that, um, uh, that existed post, uh, since, uh, I mean, post, during the post-colonial, the initial post-colonial Cameroon, Mm. nation building but then later on these were such divisions just like other countries were solidified by more structured um, ways of uh, injustices and discriminations now led into uh, divisions that existed uh, and now are very wide throughout the, the society alone linguistic anglophone francophone and other nuances so we were called there to do a small interventions we went there and did a workshop with about 50 influencers and then later on we got interest from other partners to establish a full program in ethiopia in ethiopia we we also got we usually go based on invitation in ethiopia we also got an invitation from a partner to tackle um, also some issues of ethnic okay. violence in mm-hmm. a region called Benishangul, 
Gumuz, which is bordering just adjacent to the border with Sudan. Uh, and there we have a, a kind of a mix of different um, um, ethnic groups who are sharing one region. And then every once in a while, so some of these differences and issues of colorism, um, uh, ethnical uh, affiliations, and what manifest in violence. And that can result in hate speech, or hate speech at times leads to that. So we were also invited to go into, into intervention. So these things usually go there. It's usually me and a few of my colleagues go there and do one workshop. Um, but then that picks from there and goes into a full program. So yeah, that's, so that's how we expanded. And we're building on the knowledge that we gained from our work in South Sudan to, um, to take and contextualize some of the uh, approaches in this region. Let's talk a little bit about your work in South Sudan. You know, you're talk literally talking about decades old um, conflict. So where does social media come into all this and where does your intervention actually become something that is urgent and necessary? It's a very complex uh, conflict. As you say, like it had, it had issues to do with religious. Um, South Sudan had uh, two, I mean, before the independence, South Sudan had two uh, uh, declared wars, civil wars. One that ended with the Addis Ababa agreement initially, I think in the 70s. And then another one that started in about 83. And then that ended with the Naivasha agreement. Uh, so this, uh, this conflict um, uh, spanned probably more than three regimes. In, in the then Sudan, the larger Sudan. And majority that was being fought under, under the guise of religious um, Islam versus Christian South, um, ethnic uh, Arabs vis-a-vis -vis, um, African, uh, tribal, uh, tri African tribes in the South. Um, uh, and also it had a, a huge dimension of also resource extraction and uh, mismanagement or deprivation of other people. So what happened, the, those divisions, what happened like the, the 21 years of war, basically deprived South Sudan of normalcy. So, um, so basically South Sudan did not have what you might term as a civil state for all that time. So when it gained its independence, of course it, it's supposed to, it's supposed to, and I think that was the obvious thing, to start engaging in uh, nation building now. It's a very big term, but it implies that trying to create um, uh, a national identity, trying to create a national structure for all these um, uh, tribes and groups that probably prior to this only um, had one, at least the political organs of that part of the country had one element, which is to gain it is. Um, uh, uh, right to self-determination or nationhood from the Sudan. So then 2011 comes and then you have this country that was born um, with, with a president and a vice president and a parliament and structures like that. Um, but then once you have that, the identity uh, crisis starts because, uh, because prior to the independence, South Sudan's identity was mostly an oppositional identity. We are, we are the south of the Sudan. We are, we are not part of the regime. We are part of this. But now you have to look into inward. And those cracks, it didn't take long before those cracks started to appear um, in a very subtle way. But then later on, 
you know, more pronounced and dangerous ways. Uh, so you had tribal conflicts, you had power greediness and power sharing divisions among even the ruling party. And this led to the 2013, um, early in 2013, led to the president sacking his vice president, who's from the Nuer tribe, that is uh, um, uh, an ethnic group that is very uh, large, I think the second largest, and the president who's from the Dinka tribe. Uh, before these, there were a lot of ethnic conflicts in South Sudan, but it, apart from few instances during the struggle, this, these ethnic conflicts have never been, uh, uh, been uh, aided by state machinery or large-scale political machinery that tries to uh, exploit those. But then in 2013, it happened, um, whether by design or by uh, bad luck. We had the, 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 the vice president, the president accusing the vice president of orchestrating a coup, the vice president fleeing, um, and then there were killings by people who are allied to the president and to the vice president along ethnic lines. So then you have the element of the diaspora where now social media comes. So South Sudanese, because of the long history of war, um, just like Somalia, which has a very huge diaspora community, uh, who did not go to the diaspora mm -hmm. because they are tourists, but mostly because of the conflict, fleeing the conflict. So you have a lot of a huge diaspora community who are active and feel that they are part of the of the of the nation. Um, and these these people started also uh, sharing information and engaging with the politics in the country. And then you have also a small contingent of um, people who have access to internet within the country, and also who are literate enough to engage in. in what's supposed to be civil discourse online. And these people started creating grouping online, uh, uh, groupings online. And these groupings have now started sharing information, uh, targeting each other, um, uh, glorifying killing of the other, um, uh, disgracing other ones, dehumanizing certain groups. And this creates um, mm. a ripe environment for the spread of, 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 of ethnical rhetoric. It, it, social media did not um, create this, but it, it aided the already existing divisions and made it easier for people to align based on uh, either real or perceived affiliations or real or perceived enmity. Okay. So in, in terms of your intervention, is that just focused on trying to debunk some of the uh, content that is being shared in these spaces? Or are you actually also trying to, uh, you know, get, get kind of your work as well, uh, filtering to uh, other platforms in South Sudan? Our work is twofold. One work is on countering. That means you need to reduce what is harmful. And the other work is on creating alternative spaces. So that means one work you need to kind of like people who are already engaging in hate speech and what. So you need to reduce that by. Um, um, reporting, increasing reporting, creating awareness, um, encouraging people to um, uh, to understand the nature of some of these uh, incitements and how it impacts people. So that's one part of the work. It's a huge work and it requires a lot of uh, vigilant eyes working day and night. But then we have this other work of creating alternative space, asking the question of if we tackle hate speech and we tackle misinformation and incitement to violence, what if people are not doing that, what should they be doing? So the question to that is usually around like creating 
a healthier public discourse. So that means uh, we work a lot with uh, governments on like, uh, and also like people in authority to encourage freedom of expression, to open avenues for civil society to express themselves freely, uh, to provide the, the language and the means for people to understand civil discourse, to understand why people can disagree, but still not find out, not, not, people can disagree without necessarily dehumanizing each other. Uh, so that's our, that's our kind of two folds. Once you look into these two elements, then you go down and then now you get into programs like, uh, how, what do we do? We work with journalists on kind of trying to make them more aware on how to identify fake, fake news or misinformation online. We work with um, civil society to increase the understanding of these issues and to provide the language. We work with policymakers in order for them to draft policies um, around hate speech and misinformation, but also without using that to, uh, to gag or, or, or reduce avenues for expression. Yeah. I just wonder whether, uh, as, you know, as an organization, have you been having, um, have you reached out to these major platforms, the Facebooks and Twitters, to try and uh, work with them uh, so that they can uh, kind of help you help help your work to be much more uh, easier because I can imagine that you're dealing with a deluge of content. We've had a very good collaboration with Facebook. It's in Cameroon and in South Sudan. Some work focusing uh, on engagement with policymakers, civil society to give feedback, and some work also on content reporting and what or content moderation. As you said, the challenge, there is a deluge of content uh, that is coming, that is harmful. And these platforms by design, I think they probably started looking into issues of content and incitement and taking a more proactive role just in the past few years. But initially they thought we're just, hey, tech is good for everyone um, and we should just continue with it. Yes, we have that and we're still having more conversations with these platforms. Some of these platforms are more responsive than the others. Some platforms tend to have more um, harmful content than other platforms. And we are kind of just trying to, um, to find out ways of tackling that. Let me give you an example. Um, last week, we had um, a very tragic incident in South Sudan where um, uh, someone, like a couple, had three, um, and that viewer, viewer discretion here, some of the next uh, sentences are going to be a bit um, not, not very uh, friendly. So uh, a couple had uh, a wife stepped out in the evening to go and check some things. And they had three of their children. And she came back and found three of the children have been uh, slaughtered. Uh, the following day, we started seeing this content popping up on Facebook profiles. Um, a lot of people sharing it. And you know, for in case of this, this needs to be taken down. This is a violations on all kinds of ways. So we have a community, an active community of uh, uh, activists, content creators and what, who started reporting these. And I think like in a very good way, they, and Facebook acted very fast. So like within a few hours, they were able to report. There are two ways around this. Um, reporting is one way of taking content down, but also at times engaging with people who post such content also works. Um, unless someone is very, if, if the online community knows each other, uh, so people just go and like, hey, I know this person, they posted, and then like, they just go to them and like, hey, this is bad because of, uh, this is insensitive, 
first of all, it violates their rights, and also the families are still mourning. It doesn't make sense to share this. And people are responsive, to be honest with you, uh, provided there is a good trust among the, the community. Most people are responsive. And then the others, we also report, and it's taken down. So this is how it happens in Facebook. On Twitter, we didn't see a lot of that. Um, and I think that is a function of how the Twitter community works. Um, you know, also our country. Twitter tends to be kind of like, it's a very, uh, it's, a, it's somehow you have to have some level of, um, I don't want to use the word civility, or I don't want to use the Facebook community, are not civil, but like the Twitter community, there are really people about ideas and what. So we didn't have that a lot on Twitter. Um, but on Facebook, we had a lot of it. And, and the community was able to bring that down, the community of, of uh, people that we created around. So you can see, uh, to some extent, I can say that we are helping making these platforms cleaner, but also the community that we built around this work is also very active and now takes an, a front seat role in, in mitigating these issues. What's the difficult aspect of your job? There are two difficult aspects of our job. One of it is just the vast field that you have to cover. I think we, like, apart from us and another organization, we're the only people who go into the front of this, like tackling it from the content, not from policy or what. So that's a bit difficult, given that the platform is so big. The second difficult um, aspect of the work is kind of the nuance around this, and most of the things that we tackle are issues that are very dear to people's hearts. Someone might post um, a, a graphic image, and, and when you kind of, it's not a black and white, when you come and talk to them, they're like, hey, I am doing this because I wanted to raise, to show sympathy and to raise awareness on this issue because a lot of people are in their safety and they're not, they don't understand how horrific this is. To some extent, there is validity in some areas about this. Um, and, or at times you might find someone who um, posts um, negative uh, content calling someone else's hypocrisy or a government's hypocrisy or another person's hypocrisy or a politician's hypocrisy. But then they tie it up to calling out their race or their, their gender or their sexual orientation. You find that it's okay to criticize the person, but then linking it up to their identity is already it's, it's kind of like it's a hate speech or it's trying to incite something against them so you find that it, it's not a very this field is this whole uh, space it's not hard science it's a lot of um understanding contextual agreement to contextual realities and stuff like that so i find that to be very hard like for example you find the rule around nudity in the african context we have tribes who uh, dance naked at times or half naked not in a very sexualized way, but in a way that that is how the culture is. So how do you deal around that? How do you have a general rule, but then you have exceptions and nuances that can also cater for such issues? And that is the most difficult uh, aspect that platforms are dealing with, governments are dealing with, and I think the society is yet to come to terms with it also. Tell me about your team. If I had our functions, you know, uh, so we are not, uh, we, are, we are merger between an international organization and national organizations. So we have a, our founding organizations based in Germany. It's called Rogue Agency for Critical Culture and Transformation. And then we have uh, programs in Ethiopia. Those are not organizations, but like uh, programs. And then we have in South Sudan, which is the oldest program. It's now, it's also an organization there. Um, so part of the work in South Sudan is we totally, we have a national work that is done with this we raise funding nationally, and we're also kind of autonomous, but we have an international board that works around that. 
In terms of uh, the team that works with us, our team actually consists of uh, people, researchers. We have um, people who did social science. Um, and then we have uh, techies and artists. So it's kind of a combination of this uh, mishmash of, of, of skills. Uh, the team is very young, <laughs> the average age probably for, especially like our South Sudan team. I think the average age of the team is probably like 25 or 26. Um, um, thanks to three people there who, I mean, three people who are in the early 20s who dropped our average age. <laughs> this, you know? But it's a very young team. Um, and I found that this is, uh, like for me especially, I found, I find that in, in the forums that I speak in or in the places where we do training and interventions, this is probably the only field where the, our, our usefulness does work for us in providing credibility. Like, I mean, if you want to talk about all other things, politics and what people are like, hey, you're young, you don't know any of this. But when you talk about social media, <laughs> um, if you're old, you're discredited about your knowledge of the platform of, the, <laughs> of how social media works. But if you're young, people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Young people are the ones who are all uh, on this platform. So it's, that, that's been... Um, uh, that's, that this has been uh, the, the, the experience for us. And we have a lot of fellows. And so in Cameroon, we have about 17 fellows who from digital media and what, who they kind of do work on the peripheries of our work. They're independent, but we provide them with training and some resources also to be able to cover some of the work we do. In South Sudan, we also have fellows and we have an online community that engages with us. In Ethiopia, we're also starting the same. Uh, I'm pretty sure there are many people who appreciate what you do, but I guess there are also many uh, who are not probably impressed because you are trying to adjudicate their speech. They see you as spoilers and, and unwelcome editors of, the, of what, is, what they consider as free space. I mean, are, are you dealing with that, that kind of, uh, you know, anger? And pushback. Yes, we face this. Um, there are people who are key, who might come to us from the point of like that we are like biased or partisan, or if we focus or push one issue more than the other. Like say, hey, we seem to be like we are about issues that is being done by this tribe or by this group than us. Uh, but then we also we have some of this criticism or kind of the free speech and the uh, like, as if we want to make ourselves the the judge or the the as if we have the final say on free speech. How do you deal with it? I think for us, we don't go after everything. We're, like, we're interested in, in kind of reducing harmful content um, as far as impacting people's human rights. And, and how do you define harmful content? So like there is a platform definition of that. Like uh, each platform has a definition of it. Uh, like hate speech is something that attacks someone based on race, color, gender, ethnicity. That's kind of defined. There is an international framework around that. And then, then we have national laws that define those. Um, but then we also have cyberbullying. We have doxing that we define also as like doxing. We find that like that's a threat. Also, Twitter and Facebook views that as uh, threatening someone's uh, for the views. Like doxing is when you share someone's personal identifiable information online uh, with the intent or at times the inevitable consequences of making their life uh, a target for other people. So we see that there are those which are like very, very clear. But then, then you get into like gray areas where when like someone makes insensitive remarks or um, uh, someone uh, like insults and stuff like that. I, th I think like to some extent people agree that like insults or calling someone stupid is not, um, it is bad, but it is not, it is not an attack 
on your identity or something of that sort. Um, but if someone says um, uh, you're stupid because, uh, like, I mean, excuse my remarks, someone says you're stupid because you're black or because uh, you're stupid like all black people are, that immediately becomes a racial uh, issue. Uh, so negotiating these things are, um, are very difficult and you have countries have different extremes of how they take these issues. You find a country like US where uh, individual freedom and what is termed as freedom of speech is valued as the most high valuable thing. And then almost to, to some extent, people can say a lot of things without getting into trouble. I mean, short of, short of um, threatening your life directly, there are a lot of things which are allowable. That's why you find someone like Alex Jones exists and says like Sandy Hook was not a real thing. Like people are allowed to do that and that's what the country's principles are and they go with it. Then you go, you find that like a country like Germany, which because of their history, they're like really, really, they don't joke with stuff to do with um, praising, praising the Nazi party or putting Nazi salutes or, or doing anything. You can go to jail because of that. So that's a global order, but then when, once you go within countries, you find different things. So like if you're operating within these countries, you have to be aware of the societal norms around that. If the country is more towards free speech, so how does offensive content look like there? And there's, there's obviously a cultural and local experience. So you bring that in and try and moderate this space based on those values. Yes, we bring that in, but then you have to know that, like, for example, these platforms, I mean, until recently, these platforms are basically... I mean, they do not care about your, I, when you look at their policy, they want to create, you know, they want universality of, or universal policies, because I mean, that's probably easier to do. <laughs> um, uh, and they want to apply it in all countries and that doesn't work. So what we're doing now is trying to bring that local context and saying like, hey, this means this and this, or um, maybe representing calling someone a dog or something like this might not be, Globally, might not be an international. That might not sound like something alarming, but within this country or this community, because of these historical things, this might make another person actually go and attack someone else. So we're trying to bring that. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think the platforms are listening to this as much as they ought to, um, um, and and they are mostly. I think when you look, there is there is an issue of, and that's something that will come up in the future. Most of this platform are US centric. As such, they abide by US laws first. And then, like, other considerations in case something goes really bad that might impact them. And that's why you find, like, um, last, is it last week or what? The US government can, Senate can summon all the CEOs to the, and they come and answer stuff. And they talk about very personal things. The Republican can say, hey, we think you are doing shadow banning of Republican con of content for this or the elections and what. But can, um, can countries like Kenya, uh, Cameroon, um, Ethiopia or what, summon the CEOs of these companies to say like, hey, in Ethiopia, we think this and this? Eh, they might attempt, but I don't think it will get the, the, the voice. And I think it happens also in India. I think two years ago, what, um, uh, Twitter CEO was summoned. Um, and I think, I don't know, I think he declined to go to listen to the Indian parliament. So you find this, this you, you, you want to add, add local context and understand national um, issues and what, uh, but these platforms, it, it's the, 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 the level, the, the, 
the field is not as level as it's seen on the on the anyone side. using slack right now in south sudan uh, should be uh, obviously be thanking you uh, can you just maybe just briefly just remind people about what that was so <laughs> So apart from working for Defy Head now, structurally as the director of programs, um, I also I'm a very uh, present face in terms of like kind of like digital activism and activist community, and I always try to call out this. I told you these discrepancies and how these platforms sometimes apply the rules. So by way of background, Sudan, uh, the, what was then the Northern Sudan and now Sudan. Um, this has been on the list of countries supporting terrorism by the U.S. for uh, the U.S. placed it on that since the 90s because of the Islamist regime, and then when the Bin Laden was in Sudan, and so Sudan is under a lot of sanctions. So a lot of U.S. companies, until recently, I think it's still now, a lot of U.S. companies don't provide support for users in Sudan because they think that's uh, aiding terrorism, <laughs> as weird as it sounds. Um, but then, when South Sudan when South Sudan split in 2011, um, a lot of these companies are like, yes, they are like Sudan. There is a name Sudan, and it is under sanction. But South Sudan is not under the list of countries that support terrorism. Um, so it's period. It has few targeted sanctions on individuals because of the conflict and aiding the conflict and one. But that is uh, that is uh, separate. So. Every once in a while, you find that you, if you're in South Sudan, you want to access a the platform, then they say like, hey, this is under embargo. So Slack, I wanted, because we, before we met, we were doing a program, a project with partners uh, globally in the, in the, in the communication was through Slack. So I was based in Kenya and my colleague in South Sudan, she was like, I was like, hey, create a join Slack. And then she got this screen of like, hey, um, uh, Slack is, is, uh, is uh, not supported in your country because of an embargo and stuff like that. And given that I'm aware about these laws and how the U.S. sanctions, at least on the surface of it, I know how those functions. As I reached out to Slack and I was like, hey, Slack, there is, South Sudan is not under embargo and here are the documents supporting it. So they're like, hey, we'll look into it. And their team, to their credit, their team was very swift. They returned to me, I think, in like a like few hours. And they're like, hey, sorry for this. This is, this is a mistake from our team. We have... Uh, opened it up, we have lifted. Then I had so I had to call my colleague and I was like, okay, you can now create an account. Yeah, and just like that, Slack was, and that is how Slack was opened for the whole of South Sudan. I'm surprised you don't have that in your Twitter profile. Yeah, I mean, I had to remove it up some time. Probably I should add that uh, in my CV and things like that. But also, you need to realize like how this global um, organization, because of actually US centricity. You'll most likely find like there is an intern who's sorry, I mean it's my time, it's too simplistic, but most likely there is an intern or one lawyer or someone who handles legal for Middle East and Africa, and it's just one desk, someone who Googles things online and just says, like, okay, this is how we should apply these policies. Um, and to some extent, there is a lot of I think probably companies haven't adjusted yet to how big and how vocal the user community is across sub-Saharan Africa and Africa in general. There is its, I think there's this bit of a colonial view of how these uh, countries operate. That's why you have a, a, an organization saying like, we have one person who handles Middle East and Africa. Like, what the heck? Like, do you know like how we largest Middle East and Africa? So such mistakes are bound to happen. So there is a push for um, equal and respected representation so that we can get fair treatment, especially in terms of digital rights and access to information. And here we are almost one year 
later and you've kind of expanded operations uh, from South Sudan now to Ethiopia and Cameroon. So what does the next one year look like for you? Are you still going to be in those uh, countries or uh, do you have another iteration of DeFi now? Yeah, we will definitely, for the next one year, we'll be in these countries. We want to solidify our presence um, in those countries and ensure that like we have, um, we have a very solid presence and also we want to build um, kind of like national ownership and kind of like ownership by uh, user groups and people around those uh, those uh, those countries. And we have a lot of internal work, uh, something that I've not gotten used to and our global team hasn't. Uh, but then initially we were just like all cool, let's mitigate head speech. But now we have to deal with donors, lawyers, HR, <laughs> a lot of a lot of kind of things which is not my comfortable uh, areas of, of, of existence uh, or of, of operations. So uh, there is, we've been doing a lot of things in-house to ensure that like as we expand, we also have a robust structure that supports that so that we don't grow too fast and then later on uh, uh, break a lot of things in the process. But I'm also learning in so many other areas, um, kind of setting structures, putting things in place, uh, looking at laws, for different geographies and stuff like that. So our next one year might not have a lot of outward scaling, but like a lot of inward kind of structuring and also a lot of partnerships or more partnerships. We want to reach more platforms and establish those. Uh, we wanted to, we want, we have a lot of preparations for elections. Um, we are a bit, we have some thoughts around the Kenyan election that is coming in 2022, like, I mean, like, a, um, and I think there are several elections around the regions that might happen. Ethiopian one was postponed because of COVID-19. That being said, there is a lot of limbo around that. Uh, same, we have elections that is coming in Uganda um, and in Kenya. So like we want to build up good support systems so that we're able to handle the, a lot of the issues that might come around digital technology pre-elections. Post, uh, during and post-election. Okay, I, sh I should have asked you about uh, you know the kind of work you've been doing around the COVID nineteen crisis. Yeah, we have uh, we've been doing something a lot of work to do to tackle misinformation around COVID nineteen. So in South Sudan, we have something called two one one check. We had to create a fact checking platform basically to uh, do two things. First of all, provide accurate information and data around COVID nineteen, but also tackle misinformation that is related to COVID nineteen um, in that. We're doing the same in Cameroon through something called the Africa Fact Checking Fellowship and in a, in a partnership with an organization called Data Cameroon. So when you check on Twitter, Data Cameroon, they're doing a lot of great work and we partnered with them in tackling misinformation around COVID-19 and ensuring that people are not misinformed um, and also people get access to the right information channel so that they can keep safe and also ensure that their families and then the, and they themselves are safe. That's Nelson Kwaje, Director of Programs at Defy Hate Now. You can now download my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher if you have an Android phone, and it's also on Spotify and SoundCloud. Just search for my name, Dickens Olewe. And of course, leave a rating when you find it. If you have any questions or comments, I'm always on Twitter. My handle is at Dickens Olewe. And as always, thank you so much for listening and for your comments. And until next time, bye-bye.